This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Professor Stephen Brown got rejected from his first job after earning his doctorate. Why? Because he was disabled. He was totally qualified, but the company didn't want to hire someone with a disability. Now, this may have knocked out most people, but not him. That rejection set the stage for three decades of work to change the lives of the disabled community. This is the story of overcoming challenges, finding your passion, and demanding that every human being be treated with respect. You don't want to miss it. Delving into current events to uncover relevant wisdom. Uncover relevant wisdom. This is the Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network. Professor Brown has worked throughout the entire United States, Canada, Germany, Hungary, Japan, Norway, and Sweden on the areas and the issues of disability studies, disability culture. His contributions have been recognized with many awards, including the selection of the Grand Marshal for the second annual Disability Parade Parade in Chicago, Illinois. He is an inspiring individual for his work and himself. Professor, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. So you have Please. I just wanted to make one little clarification, which is um, I retired uh, from... CDS about a year ago. I'm still affiliated with them um, and still teaching. But um, as you know, left Hawaii and moved to California. So just wanted to to um, make that clarification. Right now, right, clear the record up. Uh, although <laughs> Hawaii to California, I guess, is awesome to awesome. I, you know, is that how it works? That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love your story, and I've been reading it and 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 watching it. Um, the way I understand it, and tell me if I'm getting it right, is that you were earning a doctoral degree in history in the 1980s in the University of Oklahoma. And mm-hmm. that was your path, right? That was your yeah. trajectory. That's where you saw yourself. Yes. And because of a disability that you had, it got derailed. Can you just mm-hmm. explain that to me? Yeah. So we're talking in the early 1980s, uh, 1981, 1982. I got my doctorate, as you said, in history from OU. And... Uh, for people who remember those times, um, which are fewer and fewer these days, of course, we um, there weren't very many jobs in in liberal arts and especially in history. Um, there were probably something like five in my particular field, which was U.S. intellectual history. I didn't have um, an illusion that somebody graduating from the University of Oklahoma was going to get one of those jobs and. I didn't. Um, so I was sitting around with a, a young daughter, my first wife, and not knowing what I was going to do when I got a, a call from the chair of my department. And he said, there's a company in Tulsa who's interested in looking for um, somebody to write a history of their organization. And I said, great. wasn't really what I was interested in, but it was a job, and that was wonderful. So I talked to this guy over the phone, and we kind of hit it off. Um, I was very nervous. Um, and what most impressed him about me was I had completed my dissertation in a quicker time than he had. Oh. If I had been yeah, a little more mature, a little wiser, I would have 
I would have um, been a little skeptical about that was what impressed him, but I wasn't. So, you know, we, we kind of hit it off and I had never written a proposal by myself. I wrote a proposal to write a book of their company. He helped me a lot with the budget, which I hadn't done. And then over the phone, I was hired. So now again, this is a long time ago and, and that's important for the story, which is he was flying from, from Tulsa to Dallas and he was going to make a stop in Oklahoma City. So I said I'd go to the airport and meet him, which you could do in those days. And so we, uh, we had lunch and was very, I was very nervous. It wasn't a great interview, but it actually started on the phone call when I told him I'd be easy to recognize because I was about six foot four, had a beard and used crutches. And as soon as he heard crutches, he said, what's wrong? And I had no problem telling him. So I talked about my disability, which is called Gaucher disease, and that I um, uh, use crutches because you know, I didn't walk very far and I had pain. You know? So, okay. So we met. It was, a, it was probably a terrible interview. I really wasn't very good. But I was apparently good enough that it left. Um, we left it that he'd call me with a time to come up to Tulsa, meet the rest of the gang, and sign a, a contract. And then I didn't hear from him. Hmm. So I called him, and what ensued was a 45-minute conversation, um, most of which I don't remember. But there are two things I do remember. Now, this is Oklahoma, where football was king. Um, basketball hadn't become as popular then. So he said, and I was very skinny. I was about 6'4 and 160 pounds. So he said, well, maybe if you had the physique of a football player, we'd think you'd have the stamina to do this. That was one thing. And the other thing was he did said that he didn't think somebody using crutches could write a book. What? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that was my reaction. I slammed down the phone. I got in my car and I drove to this organization that I had heard about from two of my students um, called, at that point it was called the Independent Living Project. Now it's called Progressive Independence. And it was a, a grassroots organization that had just started to um, assist people with disabilities to um, live in the community, basically. That's kind of simplistic, but that'll work. And, um, and I had done, started doing a little bit of volunteering with this organization. I didn't know much about them. I didn't know much really about disability or disability rights, but I was beginning to learn. And so I, I got to this, this office and I kind of ranted and raved about what had just happened and said, what can I do about it? And they said, well, we don't think there's anything you can do. So I ended up Mm -hmm. Let me slow you down a little bit because there's sure. a moment there that I think is incredibly important for our listeners. Um, mm -hmm. It's a moment that you've experienced, um, and I, I almost, almost want to reel it back a little bit to uh, talk a little bit about the disease so people that don't understand what yeah. it is and don't know what it right. is. But before I get right. there, um, there's a moment that you experienced in, a, in an extreme way. It's a mm -hmm. moment in which the world throws you a curveball. It slams That's you right. down, and it's not your fault. It's not even maybe your fault. It's not even he said like, oh, I'm sorry. I have any level of class, and let me pretend like I have other candidates or that I made a mistake right. or someone above right. me you know, didn't tell me that the job isn't open. He just sort of punched you in the gut. Yep. What was the feeling that you had at that moment, and how did you go from, I hate the world, I'm sitting on my couch, to I'm getting up and I'm going to go do something about it? Well, um, so the answer to the first question is I was really angry. <laughs> Um, and it's probably, I mean, so angry. It's, and, and actually, 
this is kind of a common experience with a lot of people with disabilities that something happens. Um, you know, we can't get on a bus, uh, we can't get into a building, we're not employed for some stupid reason like this one. And you, you not only have that anger, but it stays with you. So kind of comes back really quickly sometimes. Um, hmm. However, to answer the other part of your question, I really have to go back to my childhood a little bit because I grew up in a, a family um, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, actually Portage, right outside Kalamazoo. Uh, my family was Jewish. We were um, in a synagogue, but we were in an area in a school where there were some other, other Jewish folks, but not a lot of them. And I did experience some... Um, I would say maybe mild discrimination for being Jewish, um, but I certainly knew about what had happened um, through the centuries to people who are Jewish, and my parents were very involved in a lot of a lot of um, activities relating to Judaism, but also in other kinds of of activities, and not so much that they were involved, but we talked about it. We talked about this is the six fifties and sixties. We talked about civil rights. We talked about um, Vietnam War, and I, I, I grew up in a, an atmosphere of change and reform, I would say, and that was intensified when I went to college, which was, um, I was a freshman in the, the fall of 1969. I was at Southern Illinois University, and um, the spring of 1970, students were killed at Kent State and at Jackson State, and I was one of the protesters um, hmm. out on the streets. And, but I got really frustrated. I got frustrated because I saw people who were protesting, but I saw a lot of people who were out there um, not for the protests, but to have fun, to wreak havoc. I saw that again when I went to um, an anti-war demonstration in Washington, D.C. in 71. And so the way that impacted me was I, I had always had a, a leaning toward history, and I decided to major in history. And I majored in history because I wanted to learn how to do revolution right. Wow. How to practice it, not to teach it. That's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> both, I think. Right. Both. Yeah, that's right. But practice it. So, but I didn't, you know, I grew up in a middle class home. I had an education. Um, I had that kind of mild discrimination experience mm -hmm. of being Jewish. Um, I probably did have disability discrimination, but I didn't know it at the time. But when, when this happened, when this guy told me I couldn't write a book because I used crutches, it kind of all came together for mm -hmm. me, and I found my path. So you, it, what's amazing what happens times in life to people is this moment in which, and I want to, I wanna, there's so much of this story already that I, I want to unpack because there's so many lessons mm -hmm. even before we get to the next level, but I, I, it sounds to me, very much like a path that very few people take, and, and great people take, if I can go that far, which is there's something that is real and wrong that happens to somebody. And that real and wrong moment does two things. It reveals a raw need that society hasn't adapted yet to. Mm -hmm. And it puts that person into a place that that person didn't want to be in, right? Yeah, you didn't right. intend to be doing this. You intended to go down your life and mm -hmm. see your disability as a a part, if you will, of your career, a part of your right. of your personal life. Right. And then 
you're you're stuck in a situation where you're facing this wrong and that's your moment where you could be the most important person to this movement because it's you, it's real, and you know how people feel. It's the empathy versus the sympathy to change the need moment. Yeah, and, that's and right. What I want to get at and just ask one more push on, mm-hmm. which is you made that move. Because right. by the way, as we're talking, there are thousands of people that are not going to make that move. There's a thousands of moments of change that won't happen because some guy's going to come home, slam the phone down, sit down at the couch, and watch, you know, Game of Thrones and, and, right. and drink a beer. Right. And they should be getting up and going, really, this is wrong, and now we're going to make a difference. Right. And it comes from your background of maybe mm-hmm. being out in the world. You're not, you didn't grow up in the Lower East Side. You didn't have 4 That's million right. people that were Jewish. And right. your parents, I guess, put inside you and you put inside this concept of, like you're saying, revolution is not let's go get more money from government. Revolution is where there's a problem, we can find power to make change. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I mean, looking back at it, I think all those things are true. At the moment it happened, I, I, I didn't, I mean, I was just angry mm-hmm. and I wanted to do something to mm-hmm. change it. And I, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, and I, I think a, a lot of, um, there's a, a wonderful man who's passed away named Paul Longmore, who used to say he was a historian with a disability, probably one of the more, more famous ones. Um, and he used to say that something like, you know, great, wasn't great times, but it was something like that. Great times make great people. And, and it's kind of what you're, you're alluding to, which is, you know, if this situation hadn't happened, I would have become most likely a professor of history or a writer or something and would have gone on and had really not much to do with, probably with other people with disabilities. But I, these circumstances came together where I was teaching a class where I had two students with disabilities who introduced me to the Independent Living Center. And because I wanted to connect with them more than any other reason, I went to a meeting um, and they were doing these incredible things. They were planning a statewide conference. Remember, that again, this is early 80s. They were planning a statewide conference. They were talking about sexuality and disability. They were bringing in two national leaders, a woman named Judy Human, who's works now for the Department of State, and a guy named Frank Bowe, who's passed away, but who was very influential in uh, many aspects of disability. And I began to see that there were these, these um, wonderful people and, and things going on. And the next step um, in my my evolution was that this independent living center where I started hanging out every day that mm-hmm. summer because that's where I was comfortable, um, had two, two um, new jobs that were created um, that fall, and so I got one of them and started working there. Mm-hmm. So this, this center actually uh, provided not just a place for you to respond to discrimination or to deal with things, it did something maybe more important, which is it created a culture of acceptance and, and, and being normal, if, that, if that's even, not that you weren't beforehand, but there's a sense right. of where I am now not defined by a disability, I am now defined by who I am. Um, yes, and who I am is a person with a disability, and I'm recognizing that, and peer support is the, the language of the centers these days, and, and that's what I had. I had... All of a sudden, I hadn't really been around people with disabilities, although I had, but I didn't 
really recognize it as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I was around all kinds of people with disabilities, and I was realizing that my story wasn't that different than yeah. their story. A lot of people had faced similar situations. What's interesting as I'm hearing you describe what the independent um, center did for you is one of the things as you're saying, and I'm thinking to myself, what's the difference between a group like Jews and a group of like people with disabilities? And I think the difference is, and I'd love to get your thoughts, is that when you're in some minorities, if you will, you easily congregate and you have easy ways of congregation. So you live with people or you're born to, let's say, your religion. So you're naturally, your whole family has it. And some situations are not easily congregatable. And so it's possible for one family member to have a disability or two people in a classroom. And the feelings of aloneness is what enables somebody to not understand the power of the group because there's no natural progression in that group. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And as you're you're saying that, that it reminded me of a number of things. One of the things it reminded me of is my wife who I met in the early 90s um, and who was working in um, disability rights, talks about um, a friend of hers who grew up deaf. And she, and she talks about how she didn't think she'd ever live to be an adult. And the reason was she never saw any deaf adults. Wow. Wow. Yes. Exactly. So That's one powerful. of the things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I'm going to go to the early 90s now because by now I was, I was um, actually talking about, thinking about, beginning to write about um, disability culture and... In 91, I had a chance to speak at a, a conference in, in Arkansas, and I was telling actually part of my story, um, but I ended it with a poem. And the poem was very specifically designed about storytelling, and it's called Tell Your Story, right. which is now a phrase I see all the time. <laughs> right. And maybe it was around then before, too. But, you know, and that's, that's kind of what you're talking about. People didn't have other people telling our stories but now we have all kinds of ways to access that. Right. And, and I think one of the things that's important for disabilities in general, but I think for any group of people that are feeling a way in which life isn't quote unquote the way you wanted it. I think this applies for people that are going through a sickness or applies mm-hmm. to people that are going through a divorce or people that are going through any level of pain. I think that what you did is really step one is that you have to find people that are like you that you can come to. You can't always be the one person who is you sort of banging on the door alone because mm-hmm. that it doesn't allow you to appreciate the power that you have in the masses. And someone may say, I want to be alone, but in many ways, your first move to go run to a center gave you, if I can you know, sort of ask, a platform in which you can go forward. Oh, absolutely. And, and I realized something, because I'd been in a university environment for essentially all my life at that point, and my three skills I thought I had were knowing how to research, knowing how to write, and knowing how to talk. And in a university environment, basically everybody knows how to do that. It's not so highly valued. Um, but in the community, those things were valued because not everybody brings that. 
Mm-hmm. And so oh, very I began doing all those things. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's interesting. As you leave one group, you're valued to the next group. That that that. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, so let's go a little forward. So now you are you you decide to yourself. Listen, I've got all this talent. I've got all this smarts. I've got all this ability to give to the world. I'm not going to just sort of you know I'm not going to let this go. I and you start to see a path of where you can add the value of what you've experienced in your life. Um, so, so what happens next? Where do you go? How do you do, what do you do next to, to, to make that change once you know change needs to be made? So back to the early 80s. Oh, the, the, the thing I should add to this story is um, about the employment discrimination is that it's the early 80s. There's no Americans with Disabilities Act. That didn't come until 1990. Wow. Um, but I also still tell this story because the way the ADA is written, um, employment discrimination is based on companies having either federal funds or more than 15 employees. And this company had neither. So this kind of discrimination could actually still happen. But the difference today is the climate is different. Right. Um, I went to a lawyer in those days who couldn't think of anything to do. But I think if the same situation happened and I went to a lawyer today, that would be really different. Yeah. So, um, so I started working at the Independent Living Center. Um, which is a grassroots disability rights organization, basically. I was doing peer support. Um, I was doing um, skills training, which is basically um, assisting somebody to figure out how to live in the community. That's what I was doing. So really simple things. Like this is one of the examples I love. I worked with a guy who was moving out of a, an institution into an apartment, and he couldn't see the buttons on the stove. So we did a really simple thing, which is we got aluminum foil and we put it above the stove so the reflection of the knobs <laughs> and the burners was in the aluminum foil. And that did two things. One, it allowed him to see it. But two, it was easy to replace. You know, it got mm-hmm. spattered, whatever. Okay. So it's doing those kind of things. And my favorite thing I was doing was community organizing. <laughs> so I was working on uh, getting more transportation, doing actually all kinds of things. And, and I was, you know, I was, as you said, I was part of this group. So, um, and the group was getting bigger. And I, one of the, the wonderful things for me about this, this life and disability rights is the amazing people I've met. So I mentioned this historian, Paul Longmore. My boss um, at the Independent Living Center, who's still one of my best friends, and my mentor is a woman named Helen Coots, who isn't well-known outside of Oklahoma, but is very well-known in Oklahoma. And she's been a, a quadriplegic since she was 19, something like that, from a car accident. She used to talk about how when she first went to the University of Oklahoma, she had to schedule her classes an hour apart. And the reason she had to do that was in case she had to go to the bathroom. Oh. Because there were no accessible bathrooms on campus. So she had to have time to go home if she needed oh, to go to the bathroom. Gosh. So this is, you know, things have really changed in many ways and not so much in other ways. But... Car, yeah. I, just, I, just, I just, it's unbelievable to think, I mean, it's so, and this is what hits me when you say what you say. I wonder, and I'm, I'm sure you're, this is what you do, so I don't mean to like just come up with an idea that you're living your life on. Mm-hmm. How much is a level of exposure to good, decent people saying, Oh my gosh, we never thought of that. Like who would have thought in a million years that we shouldn't have a bathroom that can help people that are all of our students? Do you do you think that's what's shifting is that the more society starts to realize God, it's not 
shifting the universe. It's being creative. It's aluminum foil. It's accessible mm-hmm. bathrooms. I, I I read in your in in your thing about tell your story about mm-hmm. the people that go to the movies. And right. That's is right. it is it the idea that people just don't want to change, or is it that I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but or is it that we need to make sure that these stories get in the hearts and minds of people so that decent human beings can say, this is just wrong. It's not major, but it's 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 important that we are, are sensitive to the people that, because I may not have gotten through this, I wouldn't mm-hmm. even know, it wouldn't have even dawned on me to be sensitive right. to. Right. I, I think it's all of those things, and I think it's more so bathrooms are really important you know bathrooms are this thing that you don't think about really unless you need it and if you need it it becomes the most important thing in your life oh yeah yeah and so where do people congregate and need bathrooms that we we think about kind of as a society airports Uh so airports usually have one accessible stall in a um in a bathroom and who goes to them pretty much everybody right you know, people have kids, people have suitcases, whatever. So why not just build all accessible stalls and we wouldn't have to worry about it? So, you know, partly money's going to come up. That always comes up. Um, but I really think it's, it's more the attitude around disability, which is disability is still, um, it's changing, but it's still seen primarily as something negative, something we don't want. Um, and people kind of know they may not know this consciously, but they know this at some level, um, that disability is something that can affect anybody anytime. Mm-hmm. And so you don't frequently want to think about it, even though there are millions of people and probably everybody listening um, and probably yourself have somebody with a disability, either yourself or in your life. Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily think about it in the, the social, political, cultural way right. that we're talking about. Yeah, I saw you had a line which is unbelievable that I, I read, and I really it resonated in me. You said, "No one is free when others are oppressed." Yeah, right? well, that's I didn't create that, but I totally agree with it. Yeah, you can't live in a world where you're just adapting it to yourself and you forget other people around you. Um, yeah, I, I I completely agree, and and to just I don't want to lose the, the track of your story, but just to comment on something, what I'm getting you're saying, which is a sensitivity for everybody, which is. The disabil the dis this disabled community may not be catered to because people aren't willing to engage them with the level of respect that they deserve. Like you told that story That's once. Right. That's you, right. You told that story once that I I I, I was um, with the um the lady in the restaurant, the blind lady in the restaurant, where you go to so there's a blind lady sitting in the restaurant and someone comes in and asks somebody else what she wants mm-hmm. to eat. And she does because People don't look like everybody else. It's as if in a society that is so valuing, that we value how you look and how you look so much, that it's as if if you don't look the same, then in some crazy wrong way, you are less valuable. And That's right. And if we realize that, I think it's it's like what you're getting at, I think, is is a point that people need to fully get, that that could be why changes aren't being made because as a community – we're not valuing enough mm-hmm. individuals that, that, that are grappling with a physical or, or mental disability. Or anything else. So I first, first, I think that disability rights is part of human rights. It's not off by itself. Right. Um, and secondly, everybody needs to be treated, I believe, with dignity. 
So you have a physical disability, you have a mental disability, you have um, a different color skin than you and I have. And whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We all need to be treated with dignity. And as a society, we're really bad at that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. And I, it's interesting as you're saying it, I'm getting it. Because I, I, when you first mentioned the bathroom, I'm shocked. Just shocked that it wouldn't be like, of course. Like, And now you're... When you're, it's something that every listener needs to fully appreciate because every one of us that's listening has someone in their lives that are going through something mm-hmm. that is challenging. There's there's someone in the corner that is suffering from you know a, an illness or or a divorce or or they lost their job or whatever it is. You're you're not fitting into what society is pretending is the way life is supposed to work, which is always perfection. And everyone else sort of retracts and like doesn't look and doesn't respect. It's a circle as opposed to engaging. We're disengaging. And it'll it'll never end until someone stands up and goes, every human being is just like every other human being. And it is our job to make sure they feel that way. Yeah, and that's absolutely. a personal decision that every one of us can really do. And, and, and hearing what you say, it really, I think, resonated with me and I hope resonates with our listeners. I hope so, too. So continue me on, on that journey if you can. You know, you were – now you're in this organization. You're volunteering. Right. And what happens well, – Actually, a lot of things happen. So I'll try and, you know, not go on forever. Um, so one of the things that happens is I'm doing these things that I was just talking about, the community organizing. Um, I'm also reading. There's not a lot to read at this point. You know, I went to the library. I found a couple books actually by this guy named Frank Bow, who was um, one of the people that came to the statewide conference. Um, he was a man who was deaf. He, As I said, he's passed away, but he did a lot of, um, he was an academic, did a lot of research, wrote a wonderful um, autobiography called Changing the Rules. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing this stuff, I'm reading, I'm, I'm going to conferences, I'm meeting other people. Um, and then really kind of two things happen, two big things. Um, one is that we're a part of a, a board that doesn't have very many people with disabilities on it. Um, and there's a bit of a personality conflict between the chair of the board and my boss, Helen. And to make a very long story short, um, we ended up walking out. Mm-hmm. So there were six of us who worked at the center at that point. Five of us walked out. Mm-hmm. Um, and we walked out over several issues, but the biggest issue was what's in jargon is called consumer control. And that means people with disabilities running their own organizations. So I frequently kind of make this connection between um, women's centers, which is you don't want men running women's centers. And you don't want people who don't have disabilities running organizations that are about people with disabilities, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean you don't want anybody without a disability. It doesn't mean people with disabilities can't be allies, but there's a a very real reason for this. And that is because people with disabilities need to connect to their power. And they can't do that if they're not in positions of power. Mm -hmm. So we walked out. And one of the things I learned when we walked out, and I, again, didn't have a job, was that I could find ways to support myself. I mean, I'd never been in that situation before. um, But I I survived and then a few months later had another job. So that happened. Um, and then actually to kind of finish that story, I was hired back three years later by the people we had walked out on to direct a, um, a move to become a, a consumer-controlled center. So oh, wow. we won that fight right. eventually. 
And we won it partly because the law changed, and the law recognized that people with disabilities ought to run these these federally funded independent living centers. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, you know, I I still had this love and background in history. Um, I liked reading academic books. I also liked reading um, pop culture. And I was reading this magazine that was called The Disability Rag. It doesn't exist anymore, but it's, it's a little bit, in my mind, it was like the Rolling Stone of the disability rights movement, the old Rolling Stone, when it came out as a newsletter, newspaper. And so the Rag was a, a newspaper, and it had a cartoon uh, called Disability Cool, and there was this interview that the editor of the, um, the Rag, a woman named Mary Johnson, did with a lady named Carol Gill. And Carol's a psychologist. She's now at the University of Illinois, Chicago. But she was talking about how people with disabilities really needed to recognize our culture. And as far as I can tell, that's the first time I really kind of put those words disability culture together. And it, it resonated with me. It hit me. And I thought, this is what I want to do. This is this. And so I started talking and writing about it. Um, and I kind of did it in... in um, tentative ways at first, because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I went to a conference and I, I facilitated and put together a panel of um, this lady, Judy Human, who I'd mentioned, who works now for the Department of State, and a man named um, Justin Dart, who's also passed away, and but who was one of the, the um, leaders in getting the ADA passed, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And we had an hour and a half, and Judy and I especially, because we were the ones who were more talking about it than Justin, who was very involved in, in ADA passage at that point. This was 89 or 90. Uh, it must have been 89. And um, we really wanted to leave space for audience participation. So I talked about the walkout, which I have just mentioned, and, um, and Judy talked about being at camps for people with disabilities when she was a kid, and Justin talked about the ADA. And then we had all this time for audience participation, and this amazing thing happened, which is it seemed like every single person in that audience wanted to talk. Wow. And talk about their stories. Yeah. And Judy and I left, and we just looked at each other and said, there's, there's really something. Yeah, you're onto something. Yeah. And then I went from that to another conference in Tulsa, and I had put together this panel, there were, I don't know, eight or nine of us. And I said, I'm thinking about this thing called disability culture, and we just kind of went and explore it. And so we did, and some people liked it, some people didn't like it, some people didn't know. But um, And then the next thing that happened in my life was I left the, the Independent Living Center, and I got a job at a place called the World Institute on Disability in Oakland. And all of a sudden, this really... Now, I'm talking... I'm mentioning names, because as I said, there's these incredible people, some of who are of whom are still with us, some of whom aren't, that I've had the fortune to to cross paths with. And at WID, you'd go down, I'm kind of speaking metaphorically here, but you'd go down one um, hall, and there was Ed Roberts, who's frequently called the father of the independent disability rights movement. Go down another hall, and there's a woman named Simi Litvak, who knew everything there was to know in those days about personal assistance, how to help somebody um, room or, or get on a in a car, other kinds of things like that. Another another hallway, and there's Debbie Kaplan, who knew everything there was to know about telecommunications and disability. Today it'd be technology, but then it was telecommunication. 
And he went down another hall and there was Judy Human, who knew everything about everything. And that's, that's actually being literal. <laughs> <laughs> She's, and so, and I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area, which is the home of the free speech movement and many other, you know, uh, gay and lesbian rights, many other kinds of things. And it has this sense of place. And that's when I really started talking about um, disability culture and recognizing that's what I wanted to do with my life. So, as I mentioned, I wrote this poem, Tell Your Story. I did it very consciously as um, a way to communicate disability culture because I had learned by this time, even though I hadn't been talking about it very long, the talking heads wasn't the way to get disability culture across. It's as you mentioned earlier, it's got to be an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. So I used everything I could possibly use that wasn't a talking head. What's, what's nice, what, what I'm hearing from you, what's really cool, and as I'm listening to the story, is you're almost giving us a, um, a, a, a history, if you will, of how organic movements start, which mm-hmm. is somebody with a, a, a problem gets hit hurt Mm -hmm. that person Mm -hmm. decides i don't know what to do about it but i'm not doing nothing about it and no one's the next day handing him a lot of money and opening up a nonprofit around them so they can go and pontificate and then (laughs) you just play the game of helping 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 and then what ends up happening over time is if you stick with something long enough you become great at it i remember you know i tell the story all the time about when i was I've, i've got a a whole bunch of kids and when i I had a son and then I had uh, identical twin girls. And I remember being, I got married young and I had these three kids and I, the last thing I wanted was to drive a minivan. That was like the worst thing possible (laughs) for a guy in his mid twenties to like now have one car because I can only afford one at the time with my wife. And so I remember going to my friend saying to my wife, I would like to, but I had never seen any guy in a minivan before. And she's (laughs) like, what? And then we go to the store, I get the minivan in the end, she wins of course. And then I drive home and all we see are minivans. And it dawned right. on me that I had seen minivans a million times, but I didn't have my mind, my my mental yeah. schema. And what I'm hearing you say is your decision to play this role, you couldn't define it for the first X amount of years, but you knew what mm-hmm. it was. That's right. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you're you're in it, you're in it, you're in it, you're in it, and then you see something, you go, oh, "That's what it really is." And look, I can I can put it into words, and I can share it with people, and then you can go out and go, "Hey, it's as you're telling me the story of the hallways, I'm picturing you in the middle of some staircase and saying, "This is what I want." Oh, look to my right, look to my left, look to the front, look to the back. But when you decide to make that difference, now you can see minivans that would have been there the whole time but you never would have known because that's not what your mind would have been focused on and now that decision and that dis- the the decision to jump into something and then not to give it up when it doesn't become easy is now what puts you in a unique position to now cultivate all the talent if you will around your you and whatever you're com- something I'm sure they're all accomplishing right. in their own way right. and now make that difference because they were there always but you can all bring them together in your unique way yeah. So just just one little thing. No staircases. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you are not. Yeah. Okay, you're right. The elevator. The elevator. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> or the ramp. The ramp. So, exactly. The ramp. So um, yeah. So you know you're you're right. And I I knew that I'd found my passion. I I was right. really aware of that. But also That's the other piece. Another right? really important part of this was I met my wife, and she as I think I mentioned. Early on, she worked at, at 
and disability rights. She was also at WID, the World Institute on Disability. We didn't know each other beforehand, but she had done a lot of work in other countries. And I, when I started talking about disability culture with her, she went, <gasps> and, and she'd heard similar stories in other countries. Wow. And so we got together, and then we left in, in 93. We left California, moved to New Mexico, and created this not-for-profit organization called the Institute on Disability Culture. And, um, and worked with it um, exclusively for about 10 years. And then both our disabilities really changed. And we kind of had to pull back on, on working. Um, but somehow we still managed to move to Hawaii in the early 2000s. And then my disability changed again. And, um, and I, I started working at the Center on Disability Studies, as you mentioned. So all these things are, you know, this is a, like compressing 20 years into two seconds, basically. But, but um, from the disability culture perspective, I did this, we used to meet sometimes for lunch at WID, and we'd talk about various things. So one day we're talking about disability culture, and I'm talking about it, is what I should say. And there were people in the room who were gay, lesbian, different religions, but I guess they were all from the U.S. And so I was talking about disability culture, and somebody said, there can't be a disability culture because we're American. And I went, what? But then I heard it a few more times in different places. And I got that the reason that somebody who, let's say, is a black lesbian, um, a black lesbian, didn't want to acknowledge disability was because they didn't want to add another perceived negative stereotype to their identity. Today, there's words for this. We call it multiple oppressions or multiple identities. Mm -hmm. But in those days, at least I didn't know about that. And so... I started really talking about disability culture, and, and for me, what that meant was somebody with a disability talking about our lives, our stories, or from the arts, which was the easiest way I saw to connect with people, you know, writing or drawing or making videos, um, or today, making websites mm -hmm. that um, relate to that disability experience. And the reason I'm, I'm telling you that story is it's gone from in the early 90s when there were maybe a handful of us talking about disability culture, and it was a very controversial idea, to today, if you do um, the words disability culture in a search engine, you'll get at least tens of thousands of returns. So in this, however long it's been now, 20, 25 years, it has gone from being controversial to being a part of the everyday life of many people with disabilities and our organizations, although not necessarily outside of this. Right. And I think the more, at least as I'm hearing it, is the more people are interacting with other people that are not like them and seeing their humanity, the more hopefully it becomes part on both sides of mm -hmm. normal, even, even as you're saying the word disability, um, I'm thinking, well, not really. I mean, I'm thinking, yeah. I'm looking at you and going, I don't know, you've, you're dealing, you're overcoming pain just to do the, like what somebody has to go through to get through their day. Right. It's only in relation to their physical body. Um, yeah. but the more I, the more I, we hear and, and, and interact and hear stories. I mean, that is, you know, it's unbelievable. I mean, as you connect to people that have, you know, that have different disabilities and you start to see them for who they are, you start to say to yourself, the fact that we, that you're not just like me, 
Mm-hmm. It's just it just it's get it just gets crazier and crazier. I think yes to yeah, start thinking right. that because you, something is different about your physical body. Now I can now make judgment about your intelligence or your capabilities or your capacity, and I I, I think it's probably like you're saying. I mean. It's the culture both within the disabled community, but more importantly, I think for me at least, it is the culture in general of us mm-hmm. being able to stop seeing people for whatever is the veneer around them and start to really take those three extra seconds and look into their humanity, mm-hmm. which like you're mm-hmm. saying, only makes us better. It's not even like we're making other people better. Right. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question. I know that we're getting to the, to, to, to the end of the interview here. Um, was there ever a moment along the way where you were about to give up? Was there ever a moment where you said, you know what, this is, why don't I just get a real job? Not that it's not a real job. I'm saying, why don't I, I stop doing my passion? Why don't I stop trying to change the world? Why don't I go back to a nine to fiver and the world doesn't listen and they're never going to change and, and that's it. I'm giving up. It's not working. I have to pay my bills. Or Did you ever have a moment of despair? And if so, how did you get over it? Well, the answer to the question is yes, but not quite the way it's being framed. Okay. So it was earlier in my life. And I was actually a student at SIU, which had a big impact on my life. But I, I, and I talked about the, the anti-war part of it and the history part of it. But what I didn't talk about and what you reminded me of is um, I had moved. I had moved from the dorm to a trailer. It was fall. And Southern Illinois isn't abominably cold but it does get cold and the trailer didn't have heat in it yet oh my and gosh. my disability is um, a metabolic disorder it's genetic and in my case it has mostly affected my my bones um and and pain pain is a part of my everyday life so and I partly, I had gone from Michigan to Southern Illinois because I was trying to get to warmer climates. We thought that would be better for the way I'd feel, although, as it turns out, it probably has more to do with atmospheric changes than cold heat. But, but we didn't know that. Okay, we didn't know a lot about Gaucher at that point. Much more is known now. Um, so I'm in this trailer, and I'm having um, a lot of pain, an incredible amount of pain. So much pain that I'm actually thinking about suicide. Wow. Because I'm in, just in so much pain. Um, and somewhere, I just decided that's not what I was going to do. I got myself home. I dropped out that semester. Um, and, and then I kind of continued on this path we're talking about. Um, but there's another, what I would call an epiphany that I had. And it came a little bit later. I'd already started working at the Independent Living Center. Um, I was, um, I'd broken my couple of vertebrae in my back and it was really bad. I, I was on the road to paralysis. Um, I ended up through another kind of long story, I won't say the whole parts of it, but I ended up at Mass General Hospital in Boston. So lived in Oklahoma, but I was in Boston and I was having back surgery. And after this back surgery, I'm lying in what's called a, um, striker bed. In a striker bed, they strap you in, and the reason they do that is so they can turn you over every couple hours so you don't get pressure sores, which are really bad if you get them there. If That's something that happens if you stay in one position for a long time. Um, and they can go down into the bone. They can be really bad. So I'm on the striker bed. I can't move anything but my arms. I'm reading. I'm listening to music because I had that, that capacity. This is early, mid-80s, 84. 
1984. But I can't do anything else for about six weeks while I'm on the striker bed. I have a lot of visitors. My family came, most of them, and, and they visited, but they also got other people to visit in the area. Um, and I had a lot of flowers in my room every day. And I went through this, this kind of mental process where I thought I'm in so much pain, what word I can't say on the air that I was thinking of. And, um, and I thought about all these things I'd been through. I'm in my early 30s. I'd broken a lot of bones. I'd been through this kind of pain. I just talked about it at SIU. And I was thinking about my, my heroes. My heroes at that time were mostly athletes. And growing up in Michigan, Al Kaline was, was a right fielder for the Detroit Tigers, was one of my heroes. And he used to do things like climb walls and break his collarbone. And then there was Mickey Mantle, who played for the Yankees and was always getting hurt. And I somehow I just made this connection and went, well, wait a minute. You know, they've gone through all this stuff and they've survived, but so have I. And I kind of, I made a couple of promises to myself in that moment. One was I'd been bored a lot in my life, and I decided I would never be bored again. And the other thing I, I thought was I'm just going to, you know, this is, this is my body that I not really liked all these years, but it's a great body. It's gotten me through all this stuff, and I'm going to appreciate it. And so those, those were moments of despair that I came through. And I haven't been bored since. And I wow. can't say I always appreciate my body, but I do mostly. That's amazing. I, I really appreciate the time you took today. I, it's just such a an amazing perspective. People go through pain a lot, but I think and what I'm getting from you is the best way to deal with pain is not to retract from it, but it's to embrace it and to not make it who you are, but to recognize that um, it's something that you should get through to, to what you're really out for, which is the life that that you can make a difference in. Right. And we all have pain. Right. You know, best definition I've seen is it hurts. <laughs> that's, you know, whatever, physical, mental, whatever. Right. And that's Charlie Brown, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. I know in all your work, and I only hope and pray that your work continues to grow and expand and people get, um, I remember I, I saw something about you where you had gone to a conference or a, a rally somewhere and you were about to read your poem and um, you just got up and everyone was telling their story and you said, you know what, it's working. People are telling their stories and now I hope more movies, more books, more, there should be more out there so that the next generation grows up and starts to see people for who they are. Um, and it's, it's because of people like you who are, were doing it before it was popular. And so I, I thank you for the time and for, you, for your work for humanity. Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. This is The Charlie Harari Show with Charlie Harari on the Blaze Radio Network.